Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Dr. Peter Gaiman is Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. He also teaches the young adult ministry at the Shepherd's Church. He runs a popular blog and pod podcast called The Bible Sojourner, which can be found at petergaiman.com. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Really happy to be here. Well, we are very grateful to have you on today to be talking about just the subject of your book, The Baptism Debate. And uh, obviously, the, the debate about baptism is a very historic debate that's been going on for, I mean, hundreds, thousands of years, like this has been going on for a very, very long time. A lot of different opinions and things. We would like to begin this conversation simply by defining some terms, because we're going to use some different words along the way, and we want to have clear definitions about those. So if you could just define for us the basic terms that people use, we say credo-baptism, pedo-baptism, uh, and just help us get a good understanding of those. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I think uh, when you're talking about baptism in general, you have these two typical categories, pedo-baptist and credo-baptist. Pedo-Baptist, and they're both Latin derivatives, Pedo referring to infant baptism. Pedo-Baptism would be somebody who, and there can be different forms of this too, but in essence, Pedo-Baptists would hold to the practice of baptizing infants that are born into Christian families or in you know, the Catholic or Lutheran understanding, it's not limited to Christian families, but in the reform circles, it is. And so those Pedo-Baptist camps are often referred to as infant Baptists. And then the contrast to that would be credo-baptism, or sometimes we refer to it as believer's baptism. And that's the camp that believes that somebody must make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ before they receive baptism. And so that would be the typical Baptist circles and some of the other denominations as well. Right. So just, uh, just for our listeners, though, there's other different things that are debated about baptism that we're not getting into today. So things like baptismal regeneration, which we do have a question that we'll touch on that, I think. Um, but that's not the main focus of this, nor your book. Um, but we are talking about just that debate between should we baptize babies or should we not? At the beginning of your book, you open with a chapter about the necessity of keeping faith and baptism linked together. And this is really, uh, in many ways, the historic way that many credo-baptists, believers-baptists have argued for the concept of baptism, that 
Now, this is for individuals who have made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Can you maybe summarize a little bit of the, the significance and the importance of seeing faith and baptism being linked together? Yeah, and as you kind of alluded to, I think that this is the crucial issue. So I think that that's why I started the book with it, because if you think even historically or biblically, the relationship between faith and baptism is ultimately the real issue. Because if faith and baptism are linked, in other words, if somebody is going to go through baptism and the prerequisite, the requirement for that is that they profess faith in Christ, then that pretty much solves the issue right there. Because if infants are incapable of expressing faith, which I think most people would say they aren't, they are not capable of expressing faith, given the biblical definition of faith, then if it's if it's as simple as that, that faith does belong with baptism, then that is a huge hurdle to come uh, to come away from the pedo baptist position. They, they, they can't really get across that barrier. And so historically, then, one of the things I think is super helpful to think through is biblically, is it is it true that that faith and baptism are linked? And I think everybody acknowledges this this fact that when you're working through the biblical texts, faith and baptism in the New Testament are hand in glove together, you know, almost every time. And one of the only exceptions to that would be Lydia's household baptism. But there, it's not as if it says faith is not present, it just doesn't mention it. So it's one of those instances where it's in almost every narrative, in all of the epistolary literature that Paul gives, faith and baptism are linked. And the one of the only narratives where it's not mentioned in Lydia's baptism you, you know, you can't, you can't, you really use the absence of the mention of that evidence as saying, well, see, that's, that's not important when you have all these other narratives. So biblically, everyone pretty much acknowledges on every side of the debate that faith and baptism are linked. And one of the things that I think is helpful too is, and I try to do this in the book, is to show that it's not just the Bible that does that, but all the way up to the Reformation, you have uh, church uh, history filled with these representations of of scholars, churchmen, all advocating the fact that baptism and faith go hand in hand. And really, that was the prevailing view until the Reformation. Now, with that, there's, you know, as I was reading that chapter and, you know, the, the discussion about particular texts and showing the relationship between faith and baptism there, it, it kind of struck me that a lot of those passages are challenging really from both sides, perhaps maybe unnecessarily so, uh, but from both sides where, you know, the temptation is to explain away some of those texts. And you note this in the book uh, for Pato Baptist about, well, that's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not talking about mm -hmm. physical water baptism. But you really lean in and say, well, not, not so fast. This is talking about water baptism. So I guess the question is, are there some texts where you would talk, look at that text and say, actually, I think that it really is legitimately talking about spirit baptism and not water baptism. And how can we discern if that's the case? Yeah, now that's a that's a great issue. And I guess my answer to that would be I'm open to, to that discussion. But I think the majority of cases, the original audience would have understood the references to baptism as water baptism. Of course, I would argue because they understood the symbolic nature of that. And I think the the reason I struggled with this originally, and I think may, maybe a lot of a lot of people who grow up in the Western church context struggle with it as well, is because being 
recipients of the Reformed tradition, uh, we we intuitively think of spirit baptism being an essential component of an of an interpretive grid. I guess I would I would say that there are very few passages that I would say even would be possible to be a reference to spirit baptism. And of those, I'm not convinced. I'm willing to have that discussion and debate, but I'm not convinced that, you know, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians or to the Romans, that they would have said, oh yeah, this is for sure uh, referring to spirit baptism, not real baptism, because they would have associated, I'm convinced, they would have associated the whole baptismal event uh, with their with the salvation process. One of the things that I didn't get a chance to go into in the book very, very much, but but I think I firmly believe is that in the early church, baptism was essentially linked with somebody's salvation experience. So if you were to ask somebody, when were you saved and when were you baptized, they would have likely said, you just asked me that question. You know, for us, we often differentiate because we have such a divorce between the time we get saved and the time we get baptized. But for them... I don't think that would have existed at all. They they understood that the baptismal process was communicating something real and objective. And I don't think, yeah, I just don't think they would have thought in those terms at all. And so I'm open to this discussion for sure, but I'm I'm definitely of the opinion that I think, you know, when you survey, you know, both church history as well as the early church history I'm talking about, like uh, a couple hundred years after the New Testament, as well as the New Testament. I, I think you'd be very hard pressed to find a definitive case where spirit baptism is being mentioned rather than water baptism. One of the reasons that uh, I think some of the uh, a credo Baptists might be kind of drawn towards the spirit baptism arguments is they're kind of afraid of the baptismal regeneration yep. discussion. And even mm-hmm. as you're talking there, like, oh yeah, the, when were you saved and when, when you were baptized? Well, what are you talking about? It's, it's like the same time. I can hear the Church of Christ guys in the back saying, amen, <laughs> oh, yeah. brother. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how do we, I, I know your book isn't about re, uh, baptismal regeneration, but how do we navigate these discussions and waters without allowing ourselves to get caught up in that theology? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good question. That is one of those things where when you're, when you're writing a book on anything, you see all these different roads that you want to go down, obviously, and that's a. In fact, uh, there have been a couple of people from who come out of Church of Christ background who've reached out to me saying, "Hey, appreciate your book. Would love for you to talk more about these kinds of issues." So I definitely appreciate the question. I would say there's there's a couple of things that come to mind in dealing with that. One is is the the context, the holistic context of Scripture. I think that's huge, and that's always been the failsafe for believers to understand that we are we are reading the Bible appropriately and interpreting it in in its uh, context is evaluating these other passages. You know, Acts 2, uh, 1 Peter 3 are often thrown out with uh, with the baptismal regeneration view. And, you know, I think many people have written on this, and so, it, you know, it, it doesn't really deserve, you know, place in the book per se, with regard to how you have the same apostles talking about the need for salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And that's, that's a huge, huge aspect of this and it's not, not of works. And so we need to hold that in one hand, but then also we understand that, and and this is where, again, I think the making a distinction in our minds is helpful because there's baptism isn't meaningless it does have a significance to it and we would we would understand baptism as being a symbolic 
reality of what our union with Christ is. So Peter clarifies that, and that's one thing that I think we we often miss is in First Peter 3, for example, it says baptism saves us, right? But then Peter just wants to make sure we clarify that it's not the washing of dirt off our bodies, he says but it's the reality of what goes on. Now, that's what sometimes leads people to say, okay, well, obviously he's talking about spirit baptism there, not real baptism. But the thing that I would I would come back is saying, well, what what's the real difference? If you think about, like, for example, um, you know, the, the example of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, you know, communion, we understand as well in, in partaking of that, there we are giving representation of a real reality but we don't make a differentiation between you know partaking of the lord's table in a physical sense and then partaking in a spiritual sense we understand that they're linked and i think in the same sense the uh baptism has has a similar reality where in the physical representation of that sign it's linked with that uh spiritual representation as well and so I understand it's a big issue. Um, and you know, anybody who listens to me is probably not going to be convinced with regard to those two things that I point out. But I think that if you look at the canonical use of scripture with how uh faith and works are are talked about hand in hand, and then if you just look at how baptism was was treated and linked in the physical sign being linked intrinsically with the spiritual sign, I, I just don't think there's a problem talking about it holistically like that. I don't know if that gets exactly at your question, but that's typically how I like to think think through those issues. No, I do think it's helpful, and there have been there have been several times where uh, texts that I had previously understood as being about spirit baptism, when I came time to teach that text, like I was moving through a book or something and examined it closer, the, it, it's very compelling that it it would almost invariably be a conclusion that no, this is this is physical water baptism, so. Well, and if uh, I could jump in there too, I'd say uh, that that happened to me while I was working on the book too, is there were so many passages where I would read commentators say, you know, talking about the washing of regeneration or uh, washing language. And I, and people would say, oh, this probably refers to baptism. And I would think to myself, ah, you're crazy. That doesn't refer to baptism. And then I would just go on. But then you spend so much time with these texts and you kind of get into a little more of the mindset of the the early Christians. And you would kind of think, well, what would they have thought when you refer to washing? I mean, what what else are they going to be thinking about when when you refer to the washing away of sins? And so, again, like that doesn't necessarily mean that baptism saves. It it means that what we're talking about is the symbol and the reality are intrinsically linked. And so, you know, I think I think the early church would have been appalled at at least our current practice of saying like, ah, oh, baptism isn't that important because they would have thought, you know, hey, let's get baptized and show our allegiance to Christ immediately because this is who we are, you know. Now with that, this is that kind of gets into a little bit of the where the practical aspects of this concept comes into play where okay, if faith and baptism are linked and we see the pattern of scripture they believed they were baptizing it was really pretty immediate and even the evidence of the early church after the writing of the New Testament, it was very quickly after they believed they were baptized. But then as you go forward in church history, we begin to find that there begins to be this gap between someone's initial profession of faith and the point of baptism to where today there are some churches that won't baptize if you're a minor. Other mm -hmm. churches will, you know, well, let's wait until we see some, you know, demonstrable evidence of fruit. How do we think about the, the time gaps between professions of faith and baptism 
in relation to how we practice this concept today? Yeah, no, that's a very good practical question. I love that question. In fact, I just recently over the last two weeks was talking to two different people about that. And I, first of all, I would say that I think if, if anyone just says that there's a one size fits all answer, that that's probably incorrect, uh, because usually it's going to depend. And one thing I would point out is that very early in church history, the church started to take uh, into consideration the importance of being trained prior to baptism. And so you have uh, catechism, even in the Didache, which if you, uh, depending on who you are, you could date that anywhere from 50 AD to 150 AD. It's probably somewhere right in the middle. And so if you're, if you're basically dating at 110 to 130 AD, somewhere around there, even there, you have instruction that you're to, you're to, uh, in, instruct and teach the, the, the baptismal candidate to be able to recite, uh, something. And the question is there, what, and most, I think the most reasonable explanation is that the candidate is supposed to have memorized the first part of the didache and to be able to recite that. And so even there, the, the idea is that this, uh, catechismal candidate for baptism is going to be able to recite that. And then he also needs to fast beforehand along with anybody else who's able, and then they go through baptism. So that's one of the, if not the earliest reference to baptism outside of the Bible that we have. And in that discussion, it's very clear that they are already prioritizing having a instruction prior to baptism. And that just gets built on in early church is you have this understanding, okay, we need to make sure that they understand what it is that they're doing. Now, somebody told me the other day, that looks a little bit different than the New Testament does. I mean, in the New Testament, we see that they believe and they're baptized, and that's true. But one of the things that I would say about that is that in the New Testament world, pri the primary examples that we see of this believing in Christ and being baptized are from the Jewish populace. Now, there are notable exception, exceptions like Cornelius in Acts 10, but even there, he's a God-fearer who had been a God-fearer for some time prior. So the reality is part of it depends on what you already know. And for a lot of people in the Jewish uh, culture growing up, they would have already been aware of the implications of what they're doing, and they would have been well aware of the scriptures and what they've taught. And I think that that uh, is sometimes forgotten. And so I'm not advocating that there needs to be necessarily years uh, between profession of faith and baptism. I, but I do think that it's unwise just to say that if somebody says they believe, just immediately baptize them without any consideration of what's going on. Uh, especially with kids, what I often tell parents, uh, and I think through this with my own kids as well, is you want to encourage professions of faith, and you want to make sure that your children are understanding what the cost is of being a Christian. You know what what it is what is it that you're actually committing to, and you know I think where the church has really struggled of late in the Baptist circles is oftentimes kids committing to Christ committing. They say they're committing, but they're doing it on behalf of their parents because they know their parents are super pumped about that. And so I want, you know, to get some high fives and hugs from my parents. And so I'm going to do this for them. And so I just, I think that's going to differ from, from situation to situation, but the reality is you just want to do as best you can to ascertain that this is a legitimate confession of faith. It's not, not because the kid wants to please their parents or anything like that, but that they're, they're legitimately uh, wanting to serve the Lord, that they have some sort of semblance of fruit, 
and then um, partake in baptism. It's interesting, uh, one of the most well-known Baptist preachers, Charles Spurgeon, actually didn't baptize his kids till they were 18, which mm. is kind of, uh, you know, that's surprising to us, uh, you know, but and I'm not saying Spurgeon is infallible and talking about the did, okay, that's not infallible, right? And we don't want to, we don't want to withhold from kids the opportunity of obeying Christ. But at the same time, uh, I do think uh, it is important to understand we need to make sure people understand what they're what they're going into when they're embracing Christ through baptism. And so personally, I, I try to meet with people who want to get baptized, you know, three or four times. I know some churches do classes, um, and maybe they have like a, a four-week class or something like that, where you go through the, the tenets of the Christian faith and help train. And I think those things are appropriate, uh, that not only is that uh, expected because this is a part of the discipleship process, but it also follows even what we saw from the earliest time uh, in the post-apostolic church. And again, not saying that that's authoritative, but just following the example, there seems to be a habitual pattern of understanding following Christ involves a intellectual volition, not just a emotional volition, if that makes sense. Well, now that we've got our Baptist cards on the table, which Baptists aren't supposed to play cards, but now that we <laughs> gotta be careful there. Now, now that we've shown our hand, uh, we want to spend the rest of this interview examining the Pado Baptist position, where it comes from, and critiquing with contrast uh, from a Baptist perspective. And now, as I read through the book, um, I, I found it interesting the uh, historical emphasis that you placed on examining this position and how it developed over history. I've always known that Augustine was instrumental in the formulation of the doctrine of paedo-baptism, but the book really helped me to understand just how influential Zwingli was in that regard. Uh, I hadn't heard too much about him, and, and you talked about him a lot in the book. So I'm wondering if you could give our listeners an overview of the role that these two men played in promoting paedo-baptism in church history. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And to be completely honest, I also was surprised in my research. That's kind of what even led to a big part of wanting to put this in print because I hadn't seen others talk about this in in light or in context of the Pado-Baptist argument. So in essence, um, in the first chapter, what I do in the book to, to really zero in on Augustine and Zwingli, I also talk a little bit about Luther, is try to trace how the church dealt with this apparent paradox. And what I mean by that is, if it's true that you have faith and baptism being linked in the Bible, and if it's true that then we also can baptize infants for the sake of argument, how do those things go together? And so from from very early time, the church started to dabble in infant baptism, I would say. So you have, obviously, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, you're going to describe this differently. But, but I think... Uh, the way I would interpret the historical evidence is that you have infant baptism starting relatively early in the middle to late second century. And then when you get to the fourth century, it's, you know, in full swing basically, and almost no exceptions to that. I mean, there, there are a few, but primarily uh, infant baptism is completely embraced. And so from regardless of how you, you understand that the, the big question regardless would be, well, how do faith and infant baptism go together? So Augustine, as you mentioned, was instrumental in this because he came up with this idea of what, what he termed fides aliena. 
And fides aliena is Latin meaning the the alien faith. And now we're not talking extraterrestrials. We're talking we're talking uh, the faith that belongs to another. So he hypothesized that because the infant himself or herself cannot believe the faith of another individual is accounted for that infant. And that could be a sponsor. It could be a parent, but then some people said, well, what happens if the parents are unbelievers, whatever. And so there was kind of an evolving discussion on this. And maybe then it's the, it's the faith of the church. Uh, but what happens if the church is apostate? Then, then what? You know, and so there's there's all these problems uh, with the fides aliena position, but it kept being debated among among uh, the medieval scholars. In fact, during that time, you also had individuals like Thomas Aquinas chime in. You know, a lot of people will remember his name, and and as this kind of faith and in infants developed, uh, how how we should understand that, you had another view develop which was uh, kind of the, they, they called it the fides infusa position, which is uh, the, the faith is infused into the infant. So it's not faith that's, that's credited to the infant on behalf of a sponsor. It's faith that the church credits to, to the infant. They're actually through the baptismal process, they are granted or bestowed faith. And, but, and we're still not talking about the baby being saved, right? This isn't, exactly. this well, isn't uh, salvific, right? Well, in that's that's the that's also part of the debate actually because uh, in Catholic theology they've they've kind of built on that saying yes that is what they were talking about, but then you have people in the Reformed camp which would say uh, no they were struggling with it but they didn't you know and it depends on which person you're talking about people interpret history history differently obviously, but some people would say no they weren't they weren't necessarily saying this is salvation they were just saying that it's it's some sort of credit giving given to them but it's it's not going to give them eternal life per se they, there's some confusion on that but the catholic church absolutely they would actually say yeah that's what's going on there is salvation that's taking place during the baptismal process of these infants and so it's actually in in that whole debate that you have the reformation taking place there's there's so many crucial aspects. There's so many crucial aspects which lead to the Reformation, and this was one of those uh, a dissatisfaction of kind of how how Scripture is being interpreted and all of that. And so, coming on that scene, you had two individuals, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. So, Martin Luther he chipped into the debate. He said, "Well, tell you what, actually, I think infants can actually believe." And so it's actually, he called uh, his position fides propria or fides infantium, which means the infants actually do exercise faith. And so how, there you have- How infantile are these infants? Uh, we're talking, you know, we're talking, well, some of the passages they would use to support this would be uh, John the Baptist in his mother's womb leaping for joy. So we're talking even uh, pre-birth infants are capable of expressing faith in this view. And so- that's actually the typical Lutheran position now too. So if you're if you're um, trying to keep score at home of how different infant <laughs> baptism views work, Catholic theology is different than Lutheran theology, which is different than Reformed or Presbyterian um, uh, theology on infant baptism. And so Luther basically said, "No, we're going to say infants are capable of expressing faith." And then so that obviously carries with it some problems too if you're going to if you're going to hold the definition of faith the way the New Testament talks about it being an actual intellectual enterprise uh that's problematic for uh for infants who you know well we'll just say if you've ever had an infant in your life you know that it's very difficult to see them 
uh, engaging on that level. Well, but, it, it, especially because, and sorry, I know we're trying to get no, to Zwingli here, but uh, the way that Reformed theology has traditionally defined faith with those three Latin words uh, that talk about fiducia and a, a census or how, whatever exactly. they all are, but how could an infant have any of the three? That's quite interesting. Exactly. And so that's why I think you keyed in on something important there because you had, you know, the the real reformers then. Luther was kind of the 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 one who started a lot of this, but he wasn't the one who's credited with the systematization of a lot of these doctrines. And so a lot of the reformers did sense, okay, this is very problematic. And so you have Ulrich Zwingli who you know, whether you're dispensational, covenantal, whatever, most people credit Zwingli as being the founder or the systematizer of covenant theology. And so he's looking at this issue saying, yeah, we're, we're pretty messed up. And so he actually has this quote. Um, I can't remember it exactly, but he basically says, all right, guys, I'm going to do something that nobody has done from, from the time of the new Testament, all the doctors, all the scholars have been wrong on this issue. And I fully acknowledge that I'm breaking out on my own here. And so what he does, I, uh, uh, he... I actually marked that in my in my copy of the book. He said, "In this matter of baptism, if I may be pardoned for saying it, I can only conclude that all the doctors have been in error from the time of the apostles. This is a serious and weighty assertion, and I make it with such reluctance." that had I not been compelled to do so by contentious spirits, I would have preferred to keep silence. At many points, we shall have have to read a different path from that taken either by ancient or more modern writer, writers or by our own contemporaries. Yeah, wow. That's uh, Each time I read that, I just think to myself, wow, that's, uh, that's very bold, Swingley. Basically saying everybody has been wrong uh, up to this point, except for me. Here we go, you know? Very Joseph Smith of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I see things like that. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's just, man, that's just bold eye-opening. And, and so, you know, the, the mention there of the contentious spirits, um, I think he's referring there to the Anabaptists, the whole, the whole concept of this pushback he's getting people saying, Hey, you know what? Why are we, why are we allowing infant baptism to continue? If we're, if we're sola scriptura, if we're looking at the scriptures, we don't see this. And so what Zwingli contributes to this then is he basically develops a system, uh, which we identify as covenant theology, and he develops this system to defend the idea that in the Old Testament, we have a continuation of the pattern of accepting children into the covenant community, and just like Old Testament Israel, which you know he would refer to and other covenant theologians would refer to as the church of the Old Testament— they embraced their children into the covenant, and the covenant is the same from the Old to the New Testament. We're under the same covenant, according to Zwingli, because there's just one covenant, because there's just one Savior. That's how they'll argue. And Zwingli then said, and so too, we must also allow children to come into the covenant. And so basically, Zwingli started to argue in, in a way that hadn't really seen uh, popularity before that, and he was starting to argue for the continuation between Old Testament and New Testament and understanding the foundation of infant baptism to be found in the Old Testament. And I just think that that's, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. In fact, I got in trouble with a couple of my Reformed Baptist friends the other day because I posted something about how uh, covenant theology naturally will often, well, we'll put it this way, there have been a couple of people um, over the last couple of years, high-profile Reformed Baptists have be, who have become paedo-baptists, 
And one of the things that I posted about that is that that's not really surprising to me because covenant theology at its core was actually systematized to defend against the Anabaptists and to protect the Paedobaptist system. And so Calvin borrowed from Zwingli, uh, the uh, Beza and those after Calvin uh, kind of helped uh, solidify that formulation. But at its core, that's one thing that I think a lot of people kind of miss in the whole discussion is that Zwingli is kind of the architect of uh, covenant theology with regard to this system of one covenant. They, they've since Zwingli's time, they, they call it the covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace then is basically the main defense of infant baptism in the reformed circles because yeah, it shows uh, the continuity. One of the quotes I have picked out from your book, you said, Today, systematic covenant theology has become the centerpiece for the Reformed Pado Baptist argument. And I was going to ask, what about the Reformed Baptists who say, no, wait a second, we can systematize covenant theology with the best of them, but we're on your side when it comes to baptism. So I'm sure they would feel like you're stepping on toes or overstating your case there. Yeah. And, and I love my Reformed Baptist uh, brothers and sisters, and basically what they're forced to do I mean, I obviously can give my opinion about what happened, uh, and they could disagree or agree uh, agree with me. But I think basically what happened um, is you have you have you know well well intentioned brothers and sisters uh, during that time where covenant theology becomes so prominent. Uh, you know, the discussion of one covenant between Old and New Testament, and it, it, it's it's just the language of the time. And so a lot of times, this is. You know, I'd have to do more research to to back this up, obviously, but it just seems to me this would be a natural outworking of the Reformed Baptist. Uh, is is during that time of the Reformation, you have people who are already a part of the Reformation uh, discussion language that's happening. I mean, primarily you're getting so much of the Reformation is even tied to Calvin's uh, school uh, in Geneva, and so there's there's so much there that's coming out from Calvin and and that that whole part of the world. And I think they're all they're all buying into the same language, the same way of talking, but then they still also don't want infant baptism because they say, well, looking at scripture, I don't see this. Uh, and so how are we going to talk about it? And so what they do is something that we often do in modern context as well, is we redefine our terms. And so the Reformed Baptist, uh, and, and I respect this, I just don't think it's even necessary. What they do is they totally redefine the covenant of grace. And what they say is okay the covenant of grace is hinted at and alluded to but it's it it is only equal with the new covenant and that's a big difference between the paedobaptist and the reformed paedobaptist or sorry the reformed baptist because uh the paedobaptist says the the covenant of grace is equal to the abrahamic covenant which is equal and essentially the same as the new covenant but the reformed baptist makes the big difference saying no we're going to define the covenant of grace differently and we're going to define it as the new covenant alone. Now that's oh, that's fine, but you do have a whole chapter devoted to that, and we have a, a few questions on that that we'll get to momentarily. But I'm curious, while we're at this juncture, you know, you, you think of Reformed Pado Baptism that's Presbyterian, mm -hmm. uh, and we're looking to one side of it and saying, okay, Reformed Baptists are a little different because they don't practice infant baptism; they practice believers' baptism. But on the other side of like Presbyterian paedo-baptism, you do have this federal vision debate that's been going on right. for a little while now. Could you speak to that and what role it plays in this whole conversation among Presbyterian paedo-baptism and Reformed Baptists? 
Yeah, there is, I don't in, include, uh, I don't know if I include anything on that in my book. I would say- You uh, did quote Doug Wilson at one point. <laughs> well, that's true. That is very true. Um, you know, when I was when I was first doing some research and reading, reading on this, that was one part I was like, man, this is going to be such an important discussion to include. And then you're just, you think about it and you're like, man, that's going to be like another whole chapter to write on this. And, uh, you know, it is, it is a small portion of, you know, the reform pedo Baptist community. And, you know, my understanding of the issue, uh, which is admittedly from afar is that there has been some shakeup with regard to that, even, a, and I'm, I would say my sources tell me, uh, cause I haven't tracked down the actual, uh, video itself, but my sources tell me that Doug Wilson has recanted from his federal vision. So basically the, the idea of federal vision is it's very, very close to, to, uh, to infant regeneration basically is that, uh, in, in some, and I don't want to pigeonhole people. Uh, one of the best discussions I've read on it, it was actually in a reformed, uh, reformed Baptist discussion of the whole issue by, uh, what's his name? Is it Jeffries? It's called the fatal flaw. And uh, he he does a really good job talking about the the whole segment uh, and and really it, there's uh, divergent views within the federal vision movement. But primarily, I think if if I remember correctly, what he's talking about there is that one of the core components that holds it together is this idea that God has elected not just the family for salvation, but those infants for salvation. And so by baptizing the infant, you're not saving them per se by baptism, but you're following through, helping them uh, retain their elect status and thereby attain salvation. So God's still the one saving them by his grace, but it's it's by ascertaining some uh, the continuation of election. And so they, they tend to tie that in. But my understanding is that Doug Wilson has, you know, recanted from that. But I, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. That book is Jeffrey Johnson, The Fatal oh, thank Flaw. You. Thank you. The whole concept of some of that federal vision stuff is can be difficult to wrap my mind around. Again, kind of viewing things from afar. Uh, but even within just getting back to the the central points of the Pado Baptist argument to begin with. There's, I think it's a struggle for many Baptists who've not really delved deep into the argumentations and, and things to how how can we understand why how do these guys do this? How you know sometimes I uh, affectionately refer to Pado Baptists as, oh, those are the baby dunkers. Recognizing, of course, that not all of them dunk the babies. They sprinkle, you know, they pour, whatever. Um, but that's just how I refer, refer to them sometimes. The struggle point for Baptists is I don't see this in Scripture, but as we've been talking about the theology, and you note in your book that it's really not so much about proof texts as it is about understanding the broader theological framework in which this practice functions. So I wonder if you could summarize the argument succinctly, and then maybe even if you could steel man the argument. If you what's what's the best argument in favor of a paedobaptist position? And it, it, maybe that will help us grasp these concepts. Yeah, no, that's that's a great thing to do. And I would just really affirm, you know, that this is exactly what we need to do because part of my passion and heart in this issue is it's an important issue. And a lot of people are talking about baptism these days. And I think that that in and of itself is a very interesting uh, component uh, based on some of the social media celebrities and things like that. And I think 
I think we really turn people off if we just dismiss the whole thing saying, well, bap baby baptism isn't in the New Testament at all. So stupid conversation. Let's move on, you know? And I think that's a good way to... Someone's been on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where we just really uh, do short service to the body of Christ. I think it is important to try to represent uh, the opposing views as best as possible. And so uh, basically my goal in the book, and I hope I achieved this, you know, I guess uh, we'll see, you know, in the in the coming future, but my goal was... Uh, that a Reformed paedo-baptist would be able to pick up the book and say, that is exactly what we believe. And I don't necessarily have to agree with his critiques of what we believe, but at least he represented us correctly. And so I think in in reading and studying all these firsthand sources, uh, trying to you know even represent them in their own quotes and words, the the basic summation of the support for infant baptism is that there's a continuity. It's a continuity issue. Uh, you have one covenant so, so this is the key I alluded to it earlier is you have one covenant, it's called the covenant of grace and all other covenants are just subsidiaries of that. So the covenant of grace shows up in different manifestations through the Noahic covenant, through the Abrahamic covenant, through the new covenant, Davidic covenant, through the new covenant. Those are all the same covenant of grace and it can show up in a variety of manifestations, but the core of it is always the same. Salvation is by uh, God's grace through faith. And then, so that's that's part one. It's one covenant from Old Testament to New Testament. And that appeals to a lot of people uh, because they because that seems to go hand in hand with the fact that salvation is always the same by God's grace through faith. Now, I would well, I, I'll critique it later. That 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 is the core, though, of that first part. The second part is similar, being that there is just one people of God then, the Church of the Old Testament being Israel, and the Church of the New Testament being the Church, I suppose. And that's that that appeals to people as well, because you can say, well, God's the same God. He's You don't have two different gods with two different peoples. He's the same God. He's always had one people. And so the people of the Old Testament, people of the New Testament are the same, and so you would expect God to relate to them the same way. And so then here's the here's the supporting arguments then. Those are the two ones, same, same God, same people, and same covenant, same God. So those are the main, you know, generic arguments that the system utilizes to defend this. And then as supporting arguments, you have uh, the idea that circumcision and baptism are the same. And that, I think, to me, is the strongest argument for paedo-baptism because— it seems it seems to be intuitively correct. And in fact, before I started writing the book, I just assumed, and I don't know, maybe other people are different than me, but I assumed baptism and circumcision were the same. I've since come to a different conclusion as I studied it thoroughly. I decided that they were quite significantly different. And so you can't say that they're the same, but that's one of the best arguments that they use biblically saying, look, circumcision is entrance into the community here. Baptism is entrance into the community there. Entrance here, entrance there, they should be the same. So for children here in the Old Testament, for children here in the New Testament. So they make that uh, equation there. And then they also would argue that just like God deals with families in the Old Testament, he also is going to deal with families in the New Testament. So I basically say you have those two main arguments, then you have these supporting arguments where you have circumcision and family solidarity being supporting arguments or evidences 
for this idea that there's one God dealing with one people the same way for one for all time. That's basically the crux of the argument. And so, yeah, I try to divide my book up into that kind of sequence to dealing with each of those portions of the argument. Well, let's talk about that covenant of grace and the one people of God, uh, starting with the covenant of grace. Chapter three of your book is all about pedo baptism and the covenant of grace. And essential to the Reformed pedo baptism position is that in their flavor of covenant theology is this idea that all the biblical covenants, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, priestly, Davidic, new covenant, all of those are essentially the same covenant of grace, just different dispensations of it, if I could poke at them a little bit by phrasing it that way. Uh, now, you argue in the book that an examination of the priestly covenant, an examination of the new covenant, deconstructs such a framework by saying that they're all just the same covenant of grace. Can you give us an overview of how this is so and how it connects back to baptism? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna just correct you in brotherly love for just a second and say I actually looked high and low and I couldn't find anyone that actually said that the priestly covenant was a manifestation of the covenant of grace. They always and, well, they just pretend like it doesn't exist. I think exactly, exactly. Now I'm I'm speaking in jest because because the way you phrased that <laughs> I think was okay. But I but the reason I make a big deal of that is because I think that is actually a legitimate argument is that the priestly covenant is a good evidence to consider. Because when you when you're looking at that, it has all uh, it has so many similarities to the other Old Testament covenants. It has even the same language of being an, e an eternal covenant. I mean, a lot of people skip over that, but it, it talks about being a, an eternal covenant. It talks about being uh, between you and your descendants after you. So it's a perpetual covenant with generations, with families, and so you know. Why, why isn't that included as a manifestation of the covenant of grace? Which we, well, we should probably just give a brief overview of it, too. And, um, Numbers 25, Phineas, he is, because of his uh, response to sin in Israel, he is given a covenant oath by God that his descendants forever would be Levitical priests. And it comes back up again, in, at least in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where specifically the sons of Zadok will be fulfilling Levitical priesthood functions into uh, the future new covenant that God would make with Israel. So that's that's my nutshell summation of what's going on there. But a lot of people just don't even know that covenant exists. Oh yeah, it's and I'm thankful you did that too because you're absolutely right. You know, most people will be like, "What? There's no covenant with pre with uh, the priestly family." But that, that's just because we're conditioned to think of these these big dogs. You know, you got the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, of course, but then you got the little priestly covenant over there. But who's to say that it's, uh, you know, it's, you, you can't just assume that that's less important. God also solidifies it with promise and with oath, just like the other ones. And he actually, like you mentioned, refers to it throughout the prophets, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. I also think that there's a really pertinent reference in Samuel where God says he's going to take the priesthood away from Eli and give it to somebody else. I think that's because Eli isn't of Phineas's family. And so I think that this covenant actually has tremendous ramifications, and yet it's completely ignored by covenant theologians. Uh, and, and that's one of the points that I make out is that why are we selective in our evidence? Because in defense of a covenant of grace, there's one overall, it's, it's kind of like 
you know, for the covenant theologian, there's one covenant to rule them all, and it's the covenant of grace, and everything comes under that. But my pushback on that is, well, what is the evidence? And when they try to defend that, they say, well, look, similar language is being used, and we see we see that, uh, and we know that we're always saved by grace through faith. There's only one mediator who saved. And but if you break down that those kinds of arguments, even the New Testament talks about Moses being the mediator of the old covenant. And, you know, I actually include a quote by um, a guy named Zacharias Ursinus, who's uh, who's a commentator uh, from, you know, 16th century. And he, he actually has a quote there where he says, yes, the New Testament refers to uh, Moses as a mediator, but really only as a type, because we all know that Jesus is the true mediator of the old covenant. And so basically he's saying, yes, the New Testament says Moses was the mediator, but we know that's not true. So he must have only been a type. And you're just like, okay, like, so you're basically just saying what the New Testament says is false. So I think that the evidences that are listed are are pretty shallow for there being one covenant. Uh, and I think, and I think you guys would probably agree with me, I think we can all get behind the idea that salvation is by faith uh, through God's grace in Old and New Testament. I think that that's very clear. But the reality that there's there's one covenant which has which which has uh its its manifestation in the old testament its manifestation in the new testament and it's the same that's not something we see in scripture well, and you, so uh, oh, you, go ahead. you have that language from the apostle paul talking about justification by faith he uses abraham as an example that's exactly. clear that it spans that as long as there have been saved people there have been saved people by faith and you also have the same apostle in romans and in ephesians paul saying that to Israel belong the covenants, plural, which is something exactly. you point out in the book. And so it is not uh, logical, actually, at all to say, because there's been one way of salvation, that means there's only actually been one real covenant. That's not the way Paul articulates it. Exactly. And I think, uh, and this is this has opened my eyes to a reality, which you know, I think uh, Dr. Mike Vlock was the first one to kind of alert me to this, and I've since seen it in other places, but but I think it's really opened my eyes to one of the one of the propensities of covenant theology is to focus on soteriology. Yes, and so you see that even in in this discussion and defense of infant baptism is relating it again, even in providing evidence, saying, "Well, look, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, so that has to mean that there's one covenant because covenants are only or primarily related to that salvation." And then that's where you take a step back and say. Well, you kind of have to prove that, though. Mm. And so I think that that's where, if you do examine the evidence, you, do, you don't exactly see that. And you also mentioned those distinguishing features of the New Covenant that were yet future for those who were in Israel when Jeremiah first introduced it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and this total forgiveness of sins with regeneration. Um, all of that is is new to the New Covenant, and that also hurts the covenant theology argument, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's that's a, a really important point. Uh, basically, in the New Covenant, Jeremiah's rendition of it, when he's describing what's going to happen, he says that everyone will know me, they shall all know me. And so some, some paedo-baptists have actually said, well, that can't be a reference to salvation, because that would be a huge problem for us. And so we're going to view it as some sort of priestly... Um, kind of esoteric priestly knowledge, Levitical. Not, there's going to be no more Levitical line of priesthood. It's just going to be 
everybody's going to have a priestly knowledge. Of course, there are some huge difficulties with that, not the least of which is that just a few chapters later, uh, Jeremiah says, by the way, the Levitical uh, covenant with my priest is going to continue perpetually, you know, so that may be pro problematic. Yeah. But uh, so I'll, even even the the more astute Pado Baptist, I think, really does zero in and say, hey, there's something to this here. Um, and so you have the typical Reformed Pado Baptist saying, yes, it says everyone's going to be regenerated who's part of the new covenant, but it's going to happen in the eternal state or something like that. And what, uh, you know, even Reformed Baptists have done a good job arguing, this is where, you know, I'd line up, you know, completely on the same page with them, is that I think, you know, especially when Hebrews is quoting this saying, hey, the new covenant is now, what it's saying, in essence, is that everybody who's a part of the new covenant has that regenerated, that regeneration uh, taking place. So in other words, there, there are no members of the new covenant that are unregenerated. Like in the old covenant, that's a big difference between the old covenant, and new covenant, is that the old covenant, uh, you had a lot of people who were members of the Abrahamic covenant who were granted blessings through the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and they weren't regenerated. And yet, uh, in the new covenant, God promises everyone will have a will have a uh, relational knowledge. Scripture often uses that that Hebrew word there, yada, for for a salvific. Uh, knowledge, a, a relationship. And so everyone within the new covenant, in contrast to the old covenant, will have that relationship. And then Ezekiel contributes too, I believe, where Ezekiel says, and everyone within the new covenant will have my spirit residing in them. And again, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty clear if you look at the Old Testament, New Testament comparison, that the New Testament saints have a tremendous privilege of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's operation in the Old Testament was more of empowering uh, and temporary, I might add as well. It wasn't a permanent uh, indwelling uh, or empowering. And so there's a big difference between Old Testament and New Testament covenantal experience. And so all that seems to indicate, like you alluded to, that there is actually a major difference between the Old Covenant experience and the New Covenant. So you can't just say that they're the same, like Paedo-Baptists often want to imply. Well, with all that in mind, on that note, I have this uh, little book called Covenantal Baptism by Jason Halopoulos, an amazing Greek-sounding last name. Uh, the It's published by PNR, The Fords by Kevin DeYoung, endorsed by Joel Beakey and Michael Horton. So interesting enough, this author got his THM from Dallas. But uh, the, it's all about uh, you know infant baptism. And I would like for you to respond to a quote in this book, because uh, he's making the case for infant baptism here. He says, quote, we see that children were included and counted among the people of God under the old covenant, and God never repeals their inclusion under the new covenant. Old Testament children receive the sign of their inclusion, circumcision, and therefore, children are to receive the sign of inclusion that implies now in the New Testament period, baptism. Circumcision and baptism each serve as the rite of initiation of their respective times. Yeah, I mean, this this is the crux of the argument. And you'll notice the way I would respond to this is noting the presuppositions behind that statement. So basically, and, and I did uh, read that book in preparation for writing my own. And I actually really appreciate how he writes too. I think he's very clear and I appreciated that because I like knowing what people Concise. believe. Yeah, it's great. Um, so we definitely recommend that book if you want to know uh, how covenantal infant baptism works. 
Uh, but what I would say is his presupposition is exactly what we were just talking about, is that he's assuming that you have identity between the people of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, and the same covenant is in operation from the Old to the New Testament. Because you'll notice even by the language he uses with regard to uh, when he's saying, you know, children are included here in the Old Testament and children should be included in the New Testament, he's making that logical connection saying that, okay, we have the entrance requirements should be the same between Israel and the church. And the reason for that is because it's one covenant. Now, one of the things that, so I would say presuppositionally, that's, those are the things that he's committing to in his argument. But one of the things I would push back additionally on that, and this is where, uh, you know, I think it might've been a unique contribution uh, of my book. I'm not sure. But one of the things that I hadn't really seen anyone else push back on this too much is that one of the things that uh, Reformed Pado-Baptists kind of get wrong on that too, is that they are a little bit inconsistent on how they apply that one-for-one -one analogy. So part of this comes from studying circumcision as much as I did, is that uh, it may be true that that children were accepted into the Old Covenant through circumcision, but it's a partial truth because only half of the children were. It, were, it was only the male children, right? Mm -hmm. And so if there's continuity between circumcision and <laughs> baptism, why, would it, why wouldn't we say, okay, we can baptize the infant males, but why would we baptize the infant females? Hey, I mean, don't, don't, don't get in the details, Peter. Stop. Yeah, yeah, details don't matter, right? Yeah, that's that's how it works. But yeah, I just I just think that you know, and, and Jason actually has a section in his book answering that question, and what he says is basically, well, there's an expansion. It, it, there's a, there's more of an overflowing of grace now in this this manifestation of the covenant of grace. So we should expect more inclusion, not less. But then I, as I'm going through studying circumcision, one of the things I show, or I try to show, at least I think I show, is that actually the way that the church practices baptism holistically is less inclusive than how Israel practiced circumcision, because there are there are many narratives where circumcision was given to, to individuals apart from faith. Like you didn't have to make a profession of faith. You didn't have to, uh, well, just even to put it in our context, they didn't have to affirm uh, faith in Jesus or the Messiah or anything like that. So uh, there there are differences and people just, like you said, don't like to go into the details of that. And I think that that's where you start uh, running into problems then. One of the things that, as we were, you were talking about the the concepts of the new covenant and what the Reformed Pado-Baptist has to say about the way you know, baptism functions and relationship to circumcision and okay, entrance into the covenant and all those things. One of the things that's really personal, that's difficult for me personally to wrap my mind around and to not get um, maybe maybe overly animated or excited about is this concept of, of them saying that these children are full participants within the new covenant with all the things that you mentioned about the new covenant but we're talking about regeneration, the new spirit, the heart of stone taken out and putting in the heart of flesh. Like all these things are promises of the new covenant. How can a reformed Pado Baptist say that children are full covenant members when all of those things are aspects of the covenant and yet still deny that this is a salvific thing for these children? Yeah, that's a great question. 
and basically how that happens, uh, you can, you can make a new category in your sheet. Uh, and that, that's what they do is they, they create a distinction between covenant member and elect of God. So elect relating to salvation and covenant member relating to being a part of the covenant, but perhaps not being saved. Now, I think that that's, and that's, I try to, you know, lovingly as, as lovingly as I can, but as firmly as I can stress that that is just an unbiblical category that in, in biblical terms, there is no difference between new covenant member and elect. And the way that they, they try to show that is multifaceted, but but in essence, it's probably the big assumption and presupposition that they're going with is just, okay, in the Old Testament, we definitely had a difference between covenant members who were part of Israel, who were part of the body, uh, and people who were actually saved, people That's who the... were actually regenerated. Romans 9, 6, maybe? Not all Israel is of Israel. That Exactly. And then other ways that they show it would be would be uh, even the warning passages in Hebrews. That's one of the big ways that they go to as well, basically saying, well, look, the author of Hebrews, whoever wrote that, whether it's Paul or somebody else, he seems to be saying that these individuals are members of the covenant, and if they fall away, they're not going to be saved. Well, we don't believe that our salvation can be lost, so obviously there must be a difference between covenant member and those who are saved. And so they'll use these kinds of arguments to to basically push and uh, and try to advocate for these different categories of whether or not you're actually a covenant member or whether or not you're uh, you're actually saved a part of God's elect. But even then, I would also say that they're they're being inconsistent because most most uh, people who advocate for full covenantal inclusion, they actually withhold communion or the Lord's Supper until mm. a child is old enough to express faith in Christ. Yeah, that's right. That is such a strange inconsistency for me to wrap my mind around. Uh, wow. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. No, that's okay. I, just, I mean, I, I had forgotten about how so many Pado baptists reject Pado communion. It's just like, that's wild to me. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's so much that goes on in my mind about that stuff too. Obviously, you know, what's in the book is only half of the thoughts that I actually have <laughs> on these things, but it's, uh, but there's, there's plenty that rolls around in my head. I try to restrain myself so I don't, uh, you know, bore everyone to death. Well, something that came to my mind as I was reading, uh, in, uh, Pater baptism and the one people of God, I believe that's chapter four. Um, there's a quote from Warfield where he says, it is true that there is no express command to baptized infants in the new Testament no express record of the baptism of the infants, and no passage so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. If such warrant as this were necessary to judge the usage, we should have to leave it incompletely justified. And I read text that, quotes like that from Warfield, who is a Presbyterian, paedo-baptist, and the thought comes to my mind, well, wait a second, well, what about the regulative principle of worship? And this is something that I don't, if I, if you get into it in your book, I've missed it. Um, but have you come across any uh, critiques of this uh, from a Baptist perspective or any responses from a Pado Baptist perspective where the regulative principle of worship, which states that in our worship, we have, we only have freedom to do things which the scriptures explicitly command of us. It, and that stands in contrast to uh, the normative principle of worship, which says as long as it's not forbidden, 
we're free to do it. Have you come across any discussion of that in relation to this topic? You know, I have not. And that's an interesting point because for how much, you know, I'm just trying to put, put my mind, uh, wrap my mind around why I haven't seen that because I think maybe in the, well, the only way I can think about maybe the reason it hasn't been mentioned as much is because maybe they're, they're holding that discussion for actual uh, worship practices. I know music gets thrown into that category a lot and all, all of those discussions, but it is an important observation. I think the undergirding foundation for a lot of the Pado-Baptist argument is born out of this principle that if you have it mentioned in the Old Testament and there's no mention of it in the New Testament, then you can continue to practice that. And in fact, they would actually argue and say, you must continue. Uh, in fact, going back to our earlier uh, note about the lack of doing communion, that's one of the things that you know, I say in my book, not that I'm advocating for paedo-baptism or paedo-communion, but basically I would say the only consistent paedo-baptist uh, is one who also does paedo-communion, because if you really do think that things have not changed from the Old to the New Testament, then you're going to have to continue that same practice. And so, yeah, I think I, I haven't seen it phrased in those terms before, but certainly the idea of continuity uh, and things that have been mentioned in the Old Testament have to carry over into the New Testament is certainly present there, but it hasn't been framed in those terms. And I think that's, that is an interesting observation. Well, again, uh, thinking about the one people of God argument that is made, we as dispensationalists would say there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And so we're coming at this from a <clears throat> very different perspective than Reformed Baptists even would be coming at this. Now I got to, with that in mind, I got a little bit of a curveball question to ask you, which is oh. <laughs> if if recognizing a distinction between Israel and the church is essential to putting baptism in its proper place, like we were just talking about, why is it that the earliest dispensationalists practiced infant baptism? Yeah, no, that's uh that's that's kind of like a slider, you know, it's not the curveball, it's a slider because, you know, <laughs> I appreciate it's, that. <laughs> it's one of those things where uh, I, I kind of think it's coming, but it's going to be painful no matter what. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I, my, my answer to that is, is basically, uh, you know, and people could disagree with me. So this is, this is my opinion. Obviously I don't have a, thus saith the Lord on this, but I think it relates to the consistency issue is I think that we are inconsistent in a variety of ways. And that that's, I'm relying on on part of even what my answer was for how Reformed Baptists can hold to covenant theology and still hold to baptism as well. Uh, I think that there's there's an inconsistency there in some in certain degrees. But I would even throw out another issue too. It's not just the dispensationalists that were Presbyterians, but you also have even uh, earlier on, uh, like you have. Um, uh, Boyce, Boyce, who, you know, super, super solid scholar. Uh, he has an awesome commentary on Romans. And in it, he basically says, yeah, we need to definitely hold to a future for Israel. And he he's, you know, he's a bit of a strange guy because he firmly holds to a future for Israel, distinction between the church and Israel with regard to that. But then he also is a Pado-Baptist. And so I actually have a footnote uh, in in one of my chapters where I, I talk about Boyce and I think maybe one other guy who 
they they seem to be very adamant about saying, you know what, the church and Israel are not the same. There is a there is a future for Israel. And so, you know, I always have to, and I, you know, I, I can't say I never overstepped this in the book. There may have been a time it got through. I tried to be very, very careful with how I said this because I didn't want to say that everybody has to hold this view, but I would say that this is the consistency issue that's it that's in play. So when you have somebody who's who's believing in the continuity between uh Israel and the church, like being one people of God, and yet they say, okay, well, we don't want to hold to infant baptism. That would be like the Reformed Baptists. They don't have to do that, right? So that that's okay. We understand that. But then there's also the Paedo-Baptist on the other side who does uh, believe that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, but then they also say, but we still need to baptize babies. And mm -hmm. so I think that's where we need to be open and fair-minded saying, okay, there are a variety of opinions on this. You can't pigeonhole people into the exact same positions. You can't say, because you believe X, you also believe all these other things. Uh, we just need to be fair. I mean, we would hate to have somebody say that about us too, just because you're a dispensationalist doesn't mean that you hold to this term interpretation on this passage, you know, whatever. And so I would say logically, consistently, this is what I would see being the, the natural outcome, the consistent outcome. But I acknowledge that there are exceptions to that. And it's kind of like in the discussion of the the covenant um, being uh, being unique and that the Spirit is indwelling everyone in the New Testament. Well, you can imagine that Reformed Paedo-Baptists push back against that, and many Reformed Paedo-Baptists say, well, the operation of the Spirit is the same in the Old and New Testament. Most say that. But there are some really interesting examples, like Michael Horton, actually, for how much he argues for covenant theology and even paedo-baptism, he, he would say, well, listen, like you look at scriptures and it does say that, you know, there's a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament with regard to how the spirit operates. And I can appreciate that because I think he's trying to be faithful as much as he can be. And I can also just try to point out, I think that that's a little bit inconsistent with his position. And of course, that's up to a matter of debate, right? Others are going to be the judge of whether whether or not I'm I'm true in saying inconsistency is the main issue there. And to be fair, I'm sure that I'm inconsistent in places of my theology as well. But I think that that's ultimately the issue is that you're you're going to have conflicts of your system and other nuances. Some of that is is your predisposition, maybe the uh, the congregation you grow up in, maybe it's the school you go to. There are so many influences in our lives which which influence us in theological categories, and we try to be aware of those, but we don't we don't always uh, catch all those, and and uh, so we need to be just acknowledging that there there are definitely inconsistencies in a variety of positions. Well, and the the nature of semper reformanda is that we all are always challenging ourselves or should be challenging ourselves and not just picking a theological system that someone wrote up however long ago and sticking to it no matter what, but we should be open. And uh, that's, you know, that's one of the things that I appreciate about some Presbyterians through history who are staunchly premillennial. Francis Schaeffer comes to mind uh, in that way. And in his commentary on Joshua actually sounds really dispensational about this is Israel's land forever and they'll be going back to the land. And so, uh, I think that is just part of guys who are honest with the text of Scripture and more loyal to that than a theological system. There will always be outliers and times of transition and all that. So I, I think that's a good answer. Yeah, well said. 
Now, we've been spending a lot of our time critiquing different arguments and different things coming from the Paedo-Baptist perspective, and uh, we haven't even gotten into things like, you know, the household baptisms and and all those sorts of things. And we're, for the sake of time, I think we're going to leave those for another time, perhaps. But uh, the last chapter, I guess, the, uh, that has content, you know, the chapter eight is just kind of more of like a summary of everything. But in chapter seven, uh, you write at the beginning of that chapter that you believe that the New Testament teaching on the significance of baptism presents what you think is the strongest case for believer's baptism. So you've been dealing with the critiques of the one system. Well, now here we come to a positive presentation of believer's baptism. And then you conclude that chapter by saying, quote, this is the strongest argument against pedal baptism, the positive case. So if you could make a positive case for why believer's baptism and what the New Testament teaches about the significance of baptism, how would you approach that? The elevator pitch. Yeah, the elevator pitch. Well, uh, how how long does this elevator ride go? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going from the lobby to the four uh, hundredth floor. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, well, you know, yeah. How how long do we have here? Yeah, no, I do think this is well. I think this is the most important thing uh, in the whole discussion because this is this is where you have full blown discussion and evidence in scripture about what baptism is. And so I think if you compare how the New Testament sets up for baptism, 100% it is identified as the confession of one's allegiance to Christ. And so, so there's an active volitional participation. In fact, uh, the the description that, that is used there in 1 Peter uh, is, is the appeal or pledge um, for a clean conscience. And no matter what position you take on that, whether it's an appeal, a request, or whether it's a pledge, which is some sort of promise, uh, whether whether you take either of those translations, that, that, that's just not something that could apply to infants. And so baptism is a volitional uh, act on our behalf where we uh, where we denote our allegiance to Christ, our, our faith in him alone for salvation, and our union with his death and resurrection. And of course, the washing aspect of baptism also symbolizes the washing away of sins. So you have those three realities, the volitional confession of sins and uh, identity with Christ in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, and then the washing away of sins. And one of the things I, I this is where I think the, the rubber meets the road with regard to the symbolism of baptism is that you read the passages that talk about what baptism means. Romans 6 comes primarily to to mind here, where you have, um, we are baptized with Christ in his death. We are, if if you will, if you will indulge me, immersed into Christ's death. (laughs) And uh, and then we are raised in newness of life. Everybody, even paedo-baptists, acknowledge that baptism symbolizes union with Christ. Now, here's the thing. Does does the New Testament talk about that as a potential union or an actual union? And I would argue that every time the the New Testament talks about baptism symbolizing the union with Christ, that's something currently in operation, currently experienced by the believer. But the Paedo-Baptist, I mean, by necessity, has to say that when an infant is baptized, it's symbolizing union with Christ that is possible for anybody who believes in Christ. 
And so I think that there's uh, baptism in the Pado Baptist realm is really stripped of its of its actual symbolic uh, representation of what it actually means, because it's a it's a potential union then for infants who, if they believe, then they will be united with Christ. But for those who confess with their mouths and believe in the Lord Jesus, they are saved, and their baptism represents a real, true union with Christ. So that Paul can say then in Romans uh, Romans six that you are raised and walk in newness of life then. So Paul uses baptism as a motivation saying, because of your union with Christ, because of the baptism, which you've undergone, you must then walk in newness of life, uh, understanding that you are no longer living for yourself, but you're united with Christ. And so I think you look at, uh, again, we, we talked about faith and baptism being linked. That's a huge, strong evidence there. The very symbolism of baptism itself is represented uh, as being an actual experience of the believer united with Christ, and then that motivates the believer to a holy life. And then I would also say, too, just because I'm not done uh, picking at the Paedo-Baptists yet, I guess, they, uh, you know, in in trying to link baptism and circumcision, that's, again, I, I think a, a just a manifest demonstration that baptism has such a unique description compared to circumcision. Nowhere is nowhere is circumcision described as union with Christ. Nowhere is circumcision described as the washing away of sins. You know, th these a lot of times they want to say circumcision and baptism are the same, but you can't you can't find those similarities. And so, yeah, you look you read through the New Testament. I I just think that you can't come away you can't come away with. The, the full understanding of these texts and say, yeah, you know what, this, this applies well to infants. You basically have to rely on the Old Testament uh, theological construct of covenant theology in order to get there. How many floors was that? Uh, we stopped before the 400th, but okay. I'm not quite sure uh, how, how far we went up. Well, then the last question that, uh, that I wanted to ask is, I've heard you say on your podcast specifically, and maybe you say it in the book too, that this is a secondary issue The when it comes to pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. However, many people in our churches are rightly disturbed when they hear some of their favorite Bible teachers sprinkle babies. Uh, they baptize babies. Uh, R.C. Sproul, for instance, I, you know, I hear people like, oh, really? He he did that, you know, at, like, how could we ever trust anything he's ever written ever again? So on a point of local church application, perhaps, how should we place emphasis on the importance of this issue in such a way that doesn't diminish it too much, but at the same time, doesn't scare people away from ever reading a Presbyterian again? Yeah, well, I think you've hit the million dollar question there. I don't think this question will ever be completely resolved until the Lord comes back. Uh, I don't see this issue ever going away just because of how how foundationally presuppositions play into it, like we've been talking about. So you're right. This is this is a secondary issue. It's not a salvation first tier issue. It's not, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book was just because I had a lot of, can I can I say just you know, great conversations with my Pado Baptist brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that. And I just really love to study the issues. And so there can be fellowship, but part of the issue, the reason why it's not meaningless is because there are other, there are other factors that are involved in this. It's not just a baptism issue. And basically this relates 
intrinsically to ecclesiology as well. So for example, like we've hinted at and talked about at a variety of stages, who is actually a part of the church? And in the Presbyterian environment, they are willingly adding unbelievers to the assembly through infant baptism and treating them as members of the assembly and, uh, you know, giving them, you know, honors due to that and, uh, entrance in. And, and so I'm not saying it's not important because there are actually ramifications about who is a part of the church. Uh, obviously church discipline then becomes an issue. When do you, when do you discipline somebody in, in church? Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of ancillary issues that relate to this. So it's definitely not unimportant. Uh, I would say, uh, well, and again, wisdom is required on this because, because I would say this, it, it's most important to be a part of a serious Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. That's the most important thing. And it's entirely possible. In fact, I'm just thinking back on a conversation I had recently within the last few weeks about a brother who's convinced that baptism is correct, but there are no good churches around. And so he's had some discussions with uh, the Presbyterian pastor in the area, um, and and they have an understanding. He's, he's a uh, he's a faithful attender of that Presbyterian church because he longs for that fellowship of brothers and sisters. He knows that he's, he's a bit of an ugly duckling there in, mm -hmm. in some senses. And that that's okay. That's, that's fine. Nothing. And I think the same applies the other way too, is that sometimes you'll have Presbyterians who long for that fellowship of good, godly, serious Christians, and there are no good uh, infant Baptist churches around. And and so I think in those situations, you want to try without compromising on your convictions. Like, I don't think, uh, I don't think you would want to, as, as a Baptist say, oh yeah, sure. We'll baptize your children. That's fine. You know, like, obviously you wouldn't go down that road, but you would say, you know what, we will let you be a part of our assembly. Uh, maybe you're not going to teach the baptism class. Maybe you're not going to do those things, but I do think that there, there should be grace given in those situations while at the same time, I do think that there are also times and places where, you know, conversations need to be had saying, I think you would really be happier at the good Presbyterian church down the road, you know, that, that kind of conversation as well. Uh, so there, there is wisdom that's involved in those, but, but I just really do, do want to echo, um, what we've been talking about that it's, it is secondary in the sense of salvation and you can have, you can have good fellowship and you can still learn from brothers and sisters. We, we even talked about the inconsistency of different theologians. There are theologians I've incredibly benefited from their, their readings, their commentaries, and yet I disagree with them on certain issues. Either I'm wrong on that issue or they're wrong on that issue, but in many other cases, I still benefit from them. And I just don't think you're ever going to get to a place. Well, let's put it this way. If you ever are in complete agreement with how somebody does everything, it sounds more like a cult than it sounds like a church to me. Yeah. Uh, now I, I still rejoice in the brothers and sisters that I'm able to have large agreement with, but usually uh, mature believers understand that there is a variety of disagreements that we can work through. This just has a lot more ramifications to it. And so, you know, if possible, you want to be at the best church that you can be. Uh, and, you know, if there, if there are more than one, if there's more than one option, um, you definitely don't want to be the one stirring up trouble being at the one that doesn't agree to your convictions on this. But I am convinced about what the Bible teaches. So I would advocate strongly saying, okay, give me a shot at convincing you about believer's baptism before you go, that kind of idea, right? But 
Uh, at the end of the day, not everyone's going to agree with me and that's fine. You know, I'm only slightly offended. And so I would, uh, I would just, you know, say that you can still have fellowship in those, in those instances, we can still, uh, even share the gospel together and just understand that these, we should encourage these discussions, not minimize them. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, Peter, so much for joining us today. Thank you for writing this book. And we encourage any of our listeners that want to pick this up. This is available Amazon.com, uh, anywhere else that you want to pick up books. I guess it's, it, would it be good to go to your website there, the Sojourner Press? Would that be a good place to, for that? Yeah, you can, or, you can order it there. Uh, Amazon probably has better shipping and pricing, but, um, but yeah, it's available wherever books are sold. So, Very good. Well, again, thank you for joining us today and, and thank you for this book. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.